turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Will that work? Yeah. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll get there in a few minutes. Bill, you want to give me the first slide there? Okay. So, <clears throat> Pastor Tim mentioned this verse at the end of his sermon last week. Luke 9.27, Jesus makes this cryptic statement. He says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And you can imagine the disciples hearing that statement and looking around at each other, and their first thought is probably, some of us aren't going to make it. Because they think the kingdom is a political entity that will overthrow Rome. But Jesus will clarify later, my kingdom is not of the, this world. And this statement by Jesus begs two questions. Number one, which of these 12 will see the kingdom before they die? And two, what is it actually that they're going to see? So Luke lays out the narrative in, in Luke 9, 28 through 45 in such a way as to answer those two questions. Number one, who gets to see it? And two, what is it that they are going to see? Um, now, uh, we are in Luke chapter 9, 28 through 45. And you can follow on the screen if you want. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? Or you can read in your Bibles, obviously. Beginning in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You can be seated. So today we're going to be talking about the transfiguration, and I've titled it Up Into Glory and Back Down to Work. So Jesus and three disciples, they go up the mountain to see the dazzling transfiguration of Jesus, to see the kingdom of God, and then they come back down the mountain to do the work of the kingdom. And the text has three main sections. First, we have the transfiguration, then we have a demon-possessed boy, and then at the end, Jesus alludes to his trial, which will lead to the crucifixion. So I told you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go ahead and find verse 18. And in this verse, Paul speaks of the transformative power of beholding God's glory. If any of you are John Piper fans, this is the verse he talks about all the time. Basically, you see God's glory and it changes you. You want to change? Do you want your life to be different? Do you want to be more like Jesus? You need to behold glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of Jesus, that's what does it. Beholding the glory of Jesus, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. Little by little, we are becoming more like him. Lord, we come to you this morning with nothing. Our hands are open and we're ready to receive from you. And I pray that you would just fill us up, God. Remind us of your goodness and the great benefits that we have in Jesus Christ this morning. Encourage our hearts, Lord. Fill us up with Jesus and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the transfiguration we see in verses 28 through 36, beginning in verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, 
he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. The account in the Gospel of Mark says after six days, but Luke says after about eight days. So possibly Mark is focusing on 24-hour periods and Luke is counting the span of weekdays. Also, we see that Luke admits that he's not being exactly precise. He says, it's about eight days. So about eight days after these sayings, what sayings is he exactly referring to? I would say all the sayings in the previous text. Take up your cross and follow me. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me. I think he's referring to all of those sayings that Pastor Tim covered last week, but especially to verse 27. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now imagine a prophet coming to church this morning and standing up in the middle of this room and saying, there are some here today who will not die until the return of Christ. Of course, we'd be looking around the room guessing. You know, that Erica Dockhauer, she's pretty healthy. She might make it. Probably, you know, it's probably the Bauer kids or the Schneider babies. Maybe they'll make it to the end. The initial thought we have regarding verse 27 is that some in that group of the 12 disciples won't die until the coming of Christ. That's when the kingdom is established, right? But we know as of today, at this time in history, in 2024, all the apostles have died. And we still await the second coming. So it can't be referring to the second coming of Christ. And there's a lot of speculation regarding this phrase, see the kingdom of God. Some theologians think that refers to the cross and the resurrection or the ascension of Christ, or possibly to Pentecost. But I think Luke believes that Jesus was referring to the transfiguration. And that's why he purposely puts verse 27 right before verse 28, despite the eight-day gap of time. He says, some won't taste death. And by some, I think he's referring to Peter and John and James the three that experienced the transfiguration. Only some saw the glory of King Jesus on the mountain. Jesus said, some will see the kingdom before they die. And about eight days after, Jesus takes some of them up on the mountain to see a glorious display of the kingdom. Admittedly, there are greater theologians than me that disagree with me but they're wrong. <laughs> I think this is the most natural reading of the text. So Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. He often went away to pray. And this time, he brought three of his closest disciples. Peter, the leader, the rock. John, the beloved. James, John's brother. And the one who would be the first to be martyred. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. 
the glory of God was revealed as he was praying. If you want to see more of God's glory, and you want to have more of God's power in your life, I encourage you to sneak away, to go to the secret place, to commune with God. Jesus' face was altered. Matthew uses the Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis and from which we get the word transfigured or transfiguration. How? How was it changed? Did his face light up with dazzling light? Did he look like a different person? Did his facial features change? Basically, Jesus changed in such a way that was indescribable. Words fail. So we say his appearance was altered or transfigured. In Mark's account, in chapter 4, verse 3, Mark says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Throw in the whole bottle of bleach, but you will never get clothes this white. Matthew 17, verse 2, Matthew says, his face shone like the sun. Presumably, the only skin that's showing on Jesus is shining like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus' skin is as bright as the sun. His face is radiant. Light is shining through his clothes. And it's not that the light is shining on him, but it is coming from him. People who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, like those across the street, have a very hard time with this passage. Back in Exodus, Moses' face reflected the glory of God. But Jesus radiated the glory of God because Jesus is God. In this moment of astounding glory, two men appear, Moses and Elijah. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke. They had a conversation. They talked about the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. I'm sure they were like, Jesus, you got to come back. Everyone misses you. Moses was the only man who was buried by God himself. No one knows where he was buried. Elijah was the man that never died, but was translated into glory by a chariot of fire. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, both of these man, men had amazing encounters with the glory of God. Uh, you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, verses 21 through 23, Moses says to God those famous words, show me your glory. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock for his protection so that God's glory does not kill Moses. So Exodus 33, beginning in verse 21, God tells him, 
you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. The most amazing thing Moses saw during his entire life was the back of God. Now turn to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And here we see Elijah's encounter with God. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah goes before the Lord, beginning in verse 11. So 1 Kings 19, 11. It says, the Lord passed by. Sound familiar? In both cases, God passes by these men. Verse 11, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah encounters God in the still small voice. And look what he does. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So he takes his cloak and he wraps it around his head, just like that. And then he stands at the entrance of the cave to face God in such a way that it won't kill him. He knows that no one can see the face of God and live. Both Moses and Elijah, they encounter God and both have to be protected from seeing the face of God. Fast forward, back to Luke chapter 9. Something has changed. Notice the contrast. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah went to God, but here in Luke 9, God goes to men. Jesus himself brings Peter, John, and James up the mountain to experience his glory. There's no cleft in the rock. Their heads are not wrapped. Peter, John, and James behold the face of God. Verse 32 says, they saw his glory. Not merely a reflection, but the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this time, Moses and Elijah get to see the face of God. Now back to that question, why Moses and Elijah? Did it have something to do with their personal encounters of God in the Old Testament? Did it have something to do with the mystery surrounding their deaths? Or did it have to do with the fact that these two men represent the old era that was being replaced by Jesus and the new covenant? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. 
Elijah was the great prophet, and thus the representative of all the other prophets. Through Moses, God gave us the law. The law established sin and righteousness. It told us, do this, don't do that. The law shut us up so that we stood condemned before a holy and a righteous God. We stood desperately in need of a Savior. I know that I am a sinner because of the law. I know that I need a Savior because of the law. The law pointed out the problem, and the prophet foretold the solution. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. So the prophets told us that the Savior was coming. The one who would remove our guilt and our shame and make us right with God. And as Isaiah 53 verse 5 states, the prophets, prophets told us that Messiah would be, verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Continuing verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah speaks of our sinful state, that we have gone astray. We know this because of the law that was established by God and given through Moses at Mount Sinai. Isaiah tells us that our sin was laid on Jesus, that Jesus dealt with our sin problem. And Isaiah 53, verse 10, says that Jesus was the offering, the sacrifice for our guilt. At the transfiguration and at the cross, we see that Jesus is in a group of three with one man to his left and one man to his right. At the cross, the world surrounded Jesus with criminals and humiliated him. But at the transfiguration, Father God put righteous men to his left and right and glorified him. Now back to these three disciples, to the inner circle, these devoted followers of Jesus, those closest to Jesus, what are they up to? They're asleep. <laughs> you, you should expect like, they got to be, they're standing in awe. They got to be worshiping Jesus. No, they're snoozing. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So the three disciples are deep in a deep sleep. Literally, they are heavy with sleep, which is kind of how you feel when you're like really asleep. But we're not surprised because we know that later in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the crucifixion, these men are doing the same thing. Jesus is sweating blood and they're sleeping. Two of the greatest moments of Jesus' life and his best friends are asleep. They wake up, they see the two men with Jesus, somehow they know that it's Moses and Elijah, 
And Luke points out that this is not one of Peter's brightest moments. It's Jesus' brightest moment, but not Peter's. And Peter, true to form, when he's not in the greatest place, mentally or emotionally, takes this moment to speak. Verse 33, And as the men, Moses and Elijah, not the visions or the ghosts, but the men, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Basically, he's out of his mind. The men are parting. Moses and Elijah fade away, and only Jesus is left. The law and the prophets had their time. But now we look to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish Moses and Elijah. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Moses speaks of a righteousness that is gained through obedience to the law. But Jesus speaks of a righteousness that is gained by faith in him. Going back one verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Say that with me. Christ is the end of the law. Let me give you the context. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You will not gain your righteousness by adherence to the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah were just the opening acts. They set the stage for Jesus Christ. And now we look to Jesus, who, according to Hebrews chapter 1, is the author and finisher of our faith. He started your faith, and he will finish your faith. He will see you through to the end. And Peter comes running up to Jesus, let's make three tents. Or another way to say it, let's build three tabernacles. And this seems totally out of left field. Even Luke admits it seems a little out there. Build tabernacles. Why? Well, you think about it, Moses built the original tabernacle. It was the place where men met with God. And there's a few problems with this idea of building tabernacles. First, this puts Moses and Elijah and Jesus on equal level. You have a Moses tent, an Elijah tent, and a Jesus tent. But Jesus is far superior. Moses and Elijah were just the gravel pathway that led us to the Jesus tent. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, later the temple, was the place where men would meet with God. But under the terms of the new covenant, people would not need to go to the Jerusalem temple 
or some new tabernacle to meet with God. Because at Pentecost, God's people would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church would be the tabernacle. And by church, I don't mean a building. I don't mean 2100 Petaluma Hill Road. I mean the people of God. We are the church. These people who would be filled. I, mean, I was thinking about that as Mike was singing the song, the one holy church. How ironic it is that all of us sinners gather together and we make one holy church. Beautiful. But these people, the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are the temple where God's presence dwells. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. So we don't need a tabernacle for Moses or Elijah we never did. And we don't need a tabernacle for Jesus because we are that tabernacle. In Acts 7, 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. But now the Most High dwells in us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit who is also referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, this verse is a little tricky because of the pronouns them, they, and they. I'm always correcting my kids for having um, unclear pronouns. But it's tricky to say who Luke's referring to. It, it, the cloud overshadowed them. That might be all six of them, or it might just be Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Then it says, they were afraid. I'm guessing not Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. I'm guessing that's just the disciples. Then it says, as they entered the cloud. Now, first, I thought the disciples were entering the cloud, and I thought, oh, how brave of them. They're scared, and they still entered the glory cloud. But we see later that they hear a voice come out of the cloud, which implies that they are not in the cloud. So I think the they who is entering the cloud is just Moses and Elijah. A cloud was a common symbol for the glory of God and the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God appeared as a cloud by day and a fire by night. In Luke chapter 9, the glory of God is seen as a fire in the face of Christ shining like the sun, and the clouds that surround him. Kind of like flying in an airplane when you go into the clouds and everything turns white. You're surrounded by bright whiteness. When something is really white, my wife says it's pitch white. Love her to death. Like pitch black where you can't see your hand in front of your face. But this is, this is, they're completely surrounded, Moses and Elijah, completely surrounded by the cloud. It is pitch white. They were immersed into the glory of God. And what an experience that must have been. An indescribable experience enveloped in the presence of God. And for the disciples, this was awesome and it was scary. There was a, a sober reverence, an incredible awe, and a fear that they might not come out of this experience alive. And in this moment of fear, they hear a voice. Verse 35, 
a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Father God wants us to know and remember three things about Jesus. Number one, this is my son. Yahweh, the God of Israel, wants everyone to know this guy is with me. And he's not just another prophet like Moses or Elijah or one of the other prophets. He's special. He's my son. He's my precious only son whom I love. Number two, he's my chosen one. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the Messiah prophecies. He is the one God chose to send to save the world. He is the promised Messiah. Now, the first two points are informational, telling us the identity of Jesus, son chosen. Next, we get an imperative, a command from the Father. Listen to him. The Father will be so pleased if you listen. If you take Jesus' words to heart, you will bring such joy to the heart of Father God. And you will benefit yourself because God will bring good into your life. Just listen to him. Listen to Jesus and you will know what life is all about. You will know the path to forgiveness. All of your sins will be wiped away. You will be given eternal life, love, adoption, true and lasting joy, sweet fellowship with God. Just listen to him. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. No more Moses and Elijah to divide their attention. The clouds have been sucked up by a divine vacuum cleaner. And now the focus is completely on Jesus. Now here in the book of Luke, we are heading to the cross, to the glory of the resurrection, and later in the book of Acts, the ascension. And now that these disciples have seen God's glory at the transfiguration, you would think that the disciples would be saying, let's do this. Let's tell everybody. Verse 36. And they kept silence. And told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why were they silent? This had to be the most amazing experience of their lives. And at least for the time being, they told no one. In Matthew 17 verse 9, we see that they were following Jesus' instructions. He said, tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Oh, the pent-up excitement. I imagine these three disciples are about to burst, and after the resurrection, they're finally like, oh, I got to tell you, you've got to know what happened on the mountain. John, the beloved disciple, he was there. He experienced the transfiguration, and I think he was remembering that event when he spoke of the incarnation in John 1.14. He says, the word which John later defines as Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh. 
He took on humanity. It says he dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. He came to earth and he fellowshiped with his creation. He showed us his glory. And maybe Peter's desire to build tents was really just a desire to make the moment last. He was experiencing a closeness to God that he had never experienced before. And he didn't want to come down from the mountain. Maybe he was an acts of service guy who just wanted to build some tabernacles. But now it's time to head back. Uh, number two, the demon-possessed boy. And isn't that always how it is? You get back from a glorious time at the men's or the ladies' retreat. You come back down the mountain to demon-possessed children. who want you to add Snapchat to their cell phones. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're working through things at home. Now, joking aside, you, you spend time in the secret place, and then you go back to regular life. You experience the kingdom of God, and then you plant your feet back on earth. And you go back to doing kingdom work. Verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. The retreat is over. It's back to work. A great crowd met him. There are a lot of hurting people in the world. A lot of people that need Jesus. You descend the mountain and once again, you face people and their problems. And it seems like they have an endless supply. Verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Luke is such an empathetic writer. He's the only gospel writer that includes this detail, that this boy was his only son. Luke is the only one who mentions that Jairus' daughter who was dead, that Jesus raised, was his only daughter. The widow of Nain, Jesus raises her son. Luke is the only one that mentions that he was her only son. There was no social security in that day. The government was not going to take care of you. It was your son that would take care of you. This man had only one son, and that boy was not fit to be a caretaker. The man explains, verse 39, and behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. In Matthew's account, Matthew 17, 15, the dad says, this boy is very ill and he often falls into the fire and into the water. And there were plenty of open fires in Israel. It gets cold in winter, especially in Jerusalem, up on the mountain. Sometimes there's snow. So people would gather around these fires to stay warm, and the demon would throw the boy into the fire. Likely he was scarred from burns. The boy had been on the edge of death on many occasions, from being burnt to death or or drowned 
The parents had to watch him like a hawk just to keep him alive. In Mark 9.21, we see that this boy had been afflicted from childhood. So this may have been going on for five to ten years. He's not a little child anymore. He's probably a teenager. Wanting Snapchat on his cell phone. Now, this family life was in upheaval. They couldn't go about their normal life like other families. They were that family that everyone hoped wouldn't show up to synagogue that week. The parents had no hope of their boy taking care of them when they were older. It was a rough life. And this father, driven to desperation, seeks help from Jesus' disciples. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And at this point, according to Mark, the desperate father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if I can. Jesus responds, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father cries out to Jesus, I believe, I'll do anything. I believe, help my unbelief. Now, why couldn't the disciples cast it out? Jesus had given them the power. Matthew 10, verse 8 says that Jesus sent them out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. And they had already cast out demons in the past. Luke 10, 17, the disciples were amazed. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So when this man came to them and asked for an exorcism, I'm sure the disciples were sure, one more exorcism, no problem. You got it, bro. One exorcism coming right up. Just bring the little darling right over here and let's see what we can do for him. I'm sure they mustered all the passion of a Pentecostal prayer meeting. You dirty, rotten demon. You get out of this boy right now. But that demon wouldn't budge. Jesus points out the problem. He thinks out loud, and you can tell he's frustrated. Verse 41. O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I able to bear with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Bring your son here. It seems that nothing pleases Jesus more than faith, and nothing disappoints him more than doubt. This is a rebuke, but who's it for? Is he rebuking his disciples for lacking faith? Is he rebuking this dad? It kind of sounds like he's rebuking everybody. The man, the disciples, the people standing around, the whole generation. Verse 42, while Jesus was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Jesus takes care of business. He makes this daddy's day. He gives him back his son. Verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Another glimpse of glory. But this time, not up on the mountain, but down in the valley. 
Sometimes I think we need to see the glory of God down in the valley just as much or more. Isn't it great that God cares about both? He meets us in prayer. He meets us in our corporate worship. But he also works in the day-to-day. He works in our problems. And notice the comparison here. This man brings his only son to be saved. And Father God sent his only son to save. One son is controlled by demons. The other son is driven to do the will of Father God. After the exorcism, the dad gets his son back. After the crucifixion, Father God gets his son back. Number three, Jesus alludes to his trial. Beginning in verse 43b. So once again, glory is proceeded by the disciples having to face the dark realities of life. In the midst of a celebration, you always hate it when someone throws a wet blanket on the party. Verse 43b, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus has to go and ruin it. He gets all serious. Jesus said to the disciples, verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. Pay attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Life isn't just one big party. Lives are on the line. And there are hard times ahead. Jesus is alluding to the mock trial that would lead to his death. Dark days are ahead for Jesus and his disciples. We have lived, some of us, all of our lives, most of us, most of our lives, in peace in the United States of America with religious freedoms. We may not always have that. There may be dark days ahead where people don't show up next Sunday because they were martyred for their faith. Is your faith strong enough to handle that? Verse 45, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. It's surprising that they don't get it, because earlier in verses 21 to 22, Jesus is very clear that he will be rejected, killed, and then raised. Verse 45 says that it was concealed sealed from them so they would not perceive jesus tells them but he keeps them from understanding his words why i think he tells them so that after it happens then they will understand that this is part of the plan but he keeps them from understanding at this moment for their own protection because he knows it's too much for them to handle right now the right amount of information at the right time. God tells us what we need to know when we need to know it. That is the mercy of God. Now, this passage is an emotional roller coaster. We have the glory of the transfiguration with dazzling light and clouds, then down the mountain to the people with their problems. We have the sadness of a demon-possessed only child and the failure of the disciples to be able to help. Then Jesus delivers the boy, and everyone's rejoicing at the majesty of God. But Jesus doesn't let the rejoicing go too long. 
because there's work to be done. He's going to the cross soon, and he needs to prepare his disciples for that reality. Our God is anything but indifferent, and life is anything but monotone. Our sovereign God keeps it exciting. He keeps our attention. He shows us his glory. John Piper says, the deepest longing of the human heart and the deepest meaning of heaven and earth are summed up in this, the glory of God. The universe was made to show it and we were made to see it and savor it. Nothing else will do. Why don't you stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray in the words of Moses himself, show us your glory. Lord, we want to see your face thrill our hearts and transform our lives. You are altogether beautiful and wonderful. Guide us through the valley of the shadow of death and lead us into your embrace where goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell with you in perfect joy forever.